0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting. This week I'm happy to say we have Marek Hadakevich on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Massacre in Yedvabne, July tenth, nineteen 1941, before, during, after. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Hi, Mark. Oh,
1: Hi. How are, How
0: are you? I'm very well. How are you today?
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me, and hello to everyone who uh, dares to listen. Dares okay. to
0: listen. Well, I'm certain that there are a lot of people that are, are, are going to dare to listen to this because it's particularly fascinating. Today, we're talking with Marek Hadakievich about a number of books, to be honest with you. This is a little bit unusual for the uh, New Books Network and for New Books in History, we'll be talking about at least four books and perhaps six, because in the pre-interview, Marek told me that there were a couple that I had missed. In general, what we'll be talking about is the controversy that started, I believe, in 1999 when uh, Professor Jan Gross published a book in Polish uh, that uh, came out in English translation in 2001 called Neighbors, and Neighbors was about... Uh, supposed Polish participation, I guess I might say, in the Holocaust—that is, uh, during World War II—this uh, book caused a large controversy both in Poland and in the United States. I can't speak for other places; I didn't follow them, but. Uh, many people weighed in on this subject because some of the things that Gross said in Neighbors were, well, not to put too fine a point on it, somewhat offensive to some people, inflammatory, and perhaps just wrong. Uh, Marek then wrote a book uh, called The Massacre in Yedvabne, uh July 10, uh, 1941, before, during, and after, which was in a sense, a response to neighbors, but also an independent study on its own. Uh, Then following that, Gross published another book called Golden Harvest, Events at the Periphery of the Holocaust, which was about, again, Polish activities in the wake of the destruction of Polish Jewry by the Germans. And he was especially interested in what we might call thieving or looting or stealing by Poles. Then in turn, um, Marek and some of his colleagues published a series of articles, which has just come out, called "Studies on the uh, Studies on the Fate of Wartime Poles and Jews," which I have just completed. Which uh, I must say just sort of debunks some of the things that Gross says in "Golden Harvest." So that is to set the scene. We'll never get to all this material, but. Suffice it to say that um, I've, have fa- I've read what Mark has written about these things, I have read what Gross has written about these things, and uh, I find what Mark has done incredibly uh, impressive and in many ways very brave, uh, because it's, it's, not an, it's not the case that he wants to make is not a particularly easy one um, to, to argue, but he does it on the basis of a lot of archival work, and he's very careful, he's scrupulous, and he is uh, oh so very scholarly. I just learned in the pre-interview that he um, learned from the best of them, sort of, old-school historians who are very punctilious about facts and sources and things, and that shows in these books. So I want to congratulate Mark for writing them and bringing them at least to my attention. Mark, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, sure. Yes, thank you for um, such a kind introduction. Um, I'm Mark Kozakievich. I am, a, I am uh, a 50 years old now. I've lived in this country most of my life. I was born in Poland. The Americans got me out of Poland during martial law. My father was in jail a, as a human rights activist, solidarity leader. At that point, he, of course, was involved with the opposition, democratic opposition. Before, uh, as a kid, I was, you know, a part of whatever my family was a part of. My both grandparents and uh, uh, grandmothers and grandfathers were political prisoners of the Nazis and communists. Many in my family perished during the Second World War. I grew up with history and because I was brought up by dinosaurs, mostly old old people, (laughs) and quite a bit, my grandmothers in particular, Uh, as a child I was a bit confused about what was history and what was present. And that goes for ancient history, too. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with history. This is very much alive for me. I went to, um, I mean, I, uh, when I was brought out of Poland, I ended up with friends of my family, my foster family in California. They are of similar background as mine. I went to college, actually, to many colleges, I, um, started at the College of San Mateo, if you have straight A's, or if you have good grades at the College of San Mateo, you can uh, transfer or at least take classes at Berkeley. So I shuffled between Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and Stanford, sitting on classes. For instance, when Norman Davies was there, I frequented uh, the Hoover, where I learned from Robert Conquest quite a bit. and uh, I, uh, I uh, listened to Martin Melia and his lectures. I was involved at Berkeley with Amnesty International under Laola Hironaka. She was my actually more main point of attraction at that point hmm. of my life, Amnesty International and Helping Political Prisoners. A I ended up at San Francisco State University for basically my, half my junior and half my senior year. I put myself to school because my family wanted me to study computers and banking. <laughs> something useful, because I'm, yeah. me and my sister are the only losers in the family. So at, at Berkeley, was um, incomplete, and uh, I studied history as an undergraduate, and then I uh, received an offer from Columbia, and I, uh, I went to Columbia where I studied under Ich van Derck and uh, Mark von Hagen and a bunch of other uh, professors. That's where I got my Ph.D. eventually. I spent a lot of time in the archives doing a case study, first ever case study of a county in Nazi-occupied central Poland, 1939-1947, where I learned the value of penetrating the local archives. And I'm I'm happy to report that the fashion is now widespread (laughs) because a professor from Hong Kong wrote a path-breaking, trailblazing study of collectivization in China by immersing himself in local county archives. Why? almost everything is available in local archives because the authorities in a centralized, especially totalitarian state, tend to CC one another. Mm -hmm. So what is classified still in Beijing is not classified as the countryside <laughs> because nobody bothers to go there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not saying that you can get secret police records, which are always very interesting. That was not available anywhere in the post-Soviet zone until uh, the early 20th century. Uh, but I did get some secret police records because sometimes they would copy the civilian and party authorities. Uh, same goes with the Nazis. For instance, I'm sorry to um, be boring you, but uh, I discovered a requisition order from a Kreisgenossenschaft, um, sort of a cooperative store for the ethnic Germans in the county I was researching. And the order was from the SS. And the order coincided with the Holocaust meaning the arrival of the SS and the extermination and deportation of the bulk of the Jewry of the County of Mm Krasnik. Yet after World War II, the communists were so sloppy and the West Germans were so indulgent that they let off the hook the SS men involved because the SS men claimed they had never been there. Mm -hmm. All you had to do was look at secondary documents which was uh, without a shade of doubt established like that wine requisition order then the particular officers indeed were there and Mm. having fun Mm
2: -hmm.
1: murdering mass murdering Jews Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. so anyway it's the devil is in the details, so mm-hmm. case studies are extremely uh, uh, fascinating. And uh, I, you know, you know the, the first person ever to have written uh, a case study that was later copied by the Annals School was pro- Professor Franciszek Bujak, who wrote a case stu- study of a single village mm-hmm. based upon cadastral uh, records for economy and church records for society in 1903. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, I think he was a mentor to Marc Bloch and Lefebvre and others, Mm -hmm. who, of course, wrote about that in French. Mm -hmm. Professor Bujak made a big mistake because he wrote in Polish. Mm -hmm. So nobody knows about him.
0: I don't consider that a mistake.
2: <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm just saying that the English language yeah. is the
1: lingua franca. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. If you write in English, then everybody reads you. Uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh. That's true.
1: So, there was a professor in Japan who published a key study of of a village, I think, basing himself on the methodology of Professor Buyak. Uh, I forgot the village was Kamakura, I think. I forgot his name. I have it written down somewhere. Uh, and nobody knows about it because the book is in Japanese. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah,
0: right. So could you do us the favor of telling us a little bit, um, first of all, setting the scene in the sense of telling us what you know uh, about, um, in a kind of neutral way, about Gross and the publication of Neighbors, and then tell us why you wrote The Massacre in Yedvapne.
1: Oh, uh, well... It started not with golf. It started with my dissertation. As I was writing my dissertation, of course, I was interested in sampling other counties. And there were no case studies to speak of and no methodology developed in Poland under the Soviet occupation for almost 50 years because case studies is about particularizing and Marxism was about centralizing. So the Marxists were unable to develop a good methodology of a key study because uh, par- particular particularities defy uh, propaganda. So if everything is uh, peculiar, everything is uh, sui generis or at least has very many uh, features that are sui generis, then it flies in the face of official propaganda which was Purveyed as the history of World War II in Poland, for instance. The the plight of the Jews almost disappeared from that history. Mm -hmm. So I was interested to sample some other geographic locations. This was in the mid-90s. And I discovered here and there uh, various uh, documents, for instance, underground uh, articles about what happened in the wake of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, or Hitler's attack on Stalin, and I discovered that in several localities that goes for uh, that goes for underground documents, I discovered that in several localities Nazis staged very similar ceremonies, namely they uh, they forced the Jewish population to dismantle the monuments of Lenin and Stalin, carry them to the Jewish cemetery and kiss them uh, and dance and pray to them and bury those monuments. It was so obviously stage-managed since there were independent reports from various areas of formerly Soviet-occupied Poland A and only some of those uh, so some of those uh, uh, mocking ceremonies ended in massacres then i thought well this was some kind of um, this must have been some kind of uh, an order from above for the germans to do it if 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 it was the case everywhere also I heard, and I uh, I heard from some of the veterans, Polish underground veterans, uh, and I found some underground reports that there were uh, assassinations of collaborators. Uh, none of the documents were specific enough but they were, uh, they were clear to me that most of the assassinations took place and retribution actions took place against uh, communist collaborators took place in the countryside. If it was the countryside, the people involved had to be ethnic Poles or Ukrainians or maybe Belarusians, Belarusians uh, but not... Uh, the Jewish population, which was in towns. Some Jews were targeted too, but they were overall um, uh, uh, a, a minority. Another dynamic I discovered while sampling was that a the underground eschewed killing most of the collaborators but instead preferred to humiliate them publicly by whipping them on marching them with a, uh, with a chain on their neck around a little village or a little town because if you kill first of all it breeds, resent- it breeds resentment and it breeds uh, Avengers who then side with another occupier against you for personal reasons. Second of all, if you kill a collaborator who was just a Joe Schmo in a co-host, that means the village has to support his wife and seven children. So chastising and beating, whipping, was deemed enough In most cases. But in in a few cases, exceptional cases, the underground would kill an entire family of collaborators. And the the, the evidence I discovered, and as I said, this was not a comprehensive study at that point, this was the mid-90s, suggested it did happen and mostly happened in the countryside and neighbor killed neighbor, but they were mostly Christians. It was Christians who were targeted. Not only, then I saw that uh, also um, Jews were targeted. However, I further discovered that any time there is a breakdown of law and order, and there was when the Soviet authorities fled east, a criminal elements emerge. Some of them draped themselves in patriotic flags, and they began robbing. But they rob, and they are not too interested at first in killing. However, if, can, if they can be convinced of impunity, occasionally they don't mind killing. But again, it's the property they're interested in, not the lives. So if they can scare you away from your property, that's all they wanted to do. And that's how it was in eastern Poland in 1941. At least that was my preliminary uh, conclusion. And I found oh, I found an underground document about Polish Christian population staging... A pogrom in Brest, which the Soviets called Brest and the Westerners called Brest Litovsk. (laughs) You see, Mm -hmm. it's Bresk. The Polish Christian population staged a pogrom when the Soviets were still defending the town. However, I know from um, Soviet sources that when the Soviet tankettes eh, 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 left the fortress and tried to meet the Nazi armies outside, they were set on fire by the locals. That means there weren't only pogroms, there were, no, there were not only uh, a, a, a revenge actions against uh, a local collaborators, whether, uh, whatever, whatever ethnicity they were, but there was also fighting against the Soviets. So it was um, a mishmash. When the Germans captured or conquered those lands, their first uh, objective was to restore order. So all the spontaneous violence that uh, that uh, uh, that uh, erupted in the wake of the German attack subsided as soon as the Germans could, you know, punish, catch anybody with weapons or establish a police outpost in those small towns. The Germans were not interested in anarchy and spontaneity. They were interested in order. And I also discovered that in most places, uh, the Germans, uh, the, the the Germans wanted to recruit the locals to collaborate, just like the Soviets. Except the Soviets, during their occupation, had either deported to the Gulag or exterminated the, much of the local elite. So those who were in place were not too trusted trusting of the new occupier, and they really didn't come forth. However, there were ambitious people of second year. In particular, um, you would be really emboldened if you could claim that you had some German blood. It didn't matter that your family had moved to Poland 300 years prior and you didn't know German and you were a Catholic, not a Lutheran. But if you could claim some German blood, that was uh, sort of like having a proletarian pedigree under the Soviets. So I discovered all those things and I even met a, a, a met an underground journalist who uh, uh, already in late July 1941, arrived in Wormsha, and he filed some reports with the underground press, which I also discovered, and he said almost everywhere was the, the same case. The Germans were running around, uh, beating, abusing Jews, shooting a few ethnic Polish communists, and massacring Jews, and this guy was, uh, was really shocked until you know his dying day, because he said when he made it to Bialystok, the Germans had just burned a whole synagogue full of local Jews alive. But he said in the countryside, when there weren't enough Germans, there were some burnings, which he didn't witness. In Bialystok, he didn't witness the crime itself, but he saw the scene of the crime afterwards. And he smelt it. So he said in the countryside, the Germans were um, using the local population to round people up. But he said this was under duress. He says, you think anybody liked the Germans? So it made sense to me. But at the same time, I saw how many gaps my preliminary reconnaissance mission into that area had and because it was not my county in central Poland, which only experienced the Soviet occupation after 1944, it did not experience it between 1939 and 1941. So I thought, well, you know, this is my preliminary finding, and when, when I wrote a book in Polish about Jewish-Polish uh, relations between 1918 and 1955, I put a couple of paragraphs in, but I footnoted them, To such an extent that I have more footnotes for one paragraph than Gross has in his entire book, Mm -hmm. Neighbors. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I always was taught by uh, my masters that we have to check and cross-check all the evidence, in particular as far as the micro-study is concerned. And micro studies are not sexy. They're tedious. It really, uh, it really requires resilience, burying yourself in in the archives where you won't meet anybody famous, and uh, and, and really putting your nose to the grindstone. So that's what I did. Mm -hmm. It it was sort of an aftermath of my doctorate, almost everything I acquired in the process of gathering material, and I did copy 200 pounds at least of documents. (laughs) For my, just for my doctorate, uh, which was published as Between Nazis and Soviets, a Polish county, a Polish, let me see, a Polish county or occupation politics in Poland, 1939 1947. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a case study of, of, of a county in central Poland. But as I said, I amassed a lot of stuff. I amassed stuff from eastern Poland, which is now Lithuania, uh, because when people say, oh, uh, occupied Poland, they really usually mean go- Government General, which was only a sliver of Poland, a slice of Central Poland. Completely different conditions applied in Western Poland, mm-hmm. uh, which was incorporated into the Reich. For instance, there was almost no guerrilla movement. There was underground, but they mostly concentrated on uh, self-support, spying, and dissemination of underground press. Whereas in central Poland and especially in eastern Poland, there were entire divisions in the in the forest fighting against both the Nazis and the communists. So, uh, it it you know the, the situation was completely different. Also, uh, Polish areas incorporated into the Reich uh, were very orderly. The slaughter of the elites took place mostly in 1939 and 1940. And then there were occasional or periodic. Cleansing actions of the underground, but those were limited uh, because the Germans were interested in law and order. They were not interested in law and order. They were interested in exploitation in Eastern Poland or contemporary Western Belarus, Western Ukraine, and Lithuania. And they were not. Uh, they when the when the Holocaust overwhelmed everything, law and order collapsed in Central Poland too. So the situation was completely different. And we have to keep in mind those regionalisms uh, and really inhuman conditions for the Jews in particular, but then uh, everything else too, and everyone else was impacted. Mm-hmm. Somebody, somebody asked me during my dissertation defense, one of the professors who was German, Volker Bergen, he said, well, how do you account for what Christopher Browning called ordinary men? Uh, German gendarmes from Hamburg or somewhere, because the ordinary men also visited my county. And I think they did much more damage than Christopher Browning described. He doesn't read Polish, so... And he only reads uh, German. Mm. Uh, uh, So he, he just didn't consult. Enough evidence. Anyway, so I was asked, how could a policeman, even a reserve policeman, do something so bestial. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I think it's about human nature and human psychology. That's the way I see it. I, I remember vividly a description by um, by a, 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 a woman, of the intelligentsia who was of Jewish origin but she was not hiding or passing as an Aryan because everybody saw everybody knew that even though she was of Jewish origin this is also Polish peculiarity she was assimilated if she was the wife of a Ukrainian doctor so uh, uh, this was in Januf Lubelski and this woman describes a four year old or five year old Jewish girl who was found by two gen- German gendarmes one of the gendarmes had a dog, and the gendarmes were taking this baby, this little girl, to the cemetery to kill her, and she was clinging to one of the gendarmes who was petting her head because she was afraid of the dog, which had tri- which had tracked her down. And they, he was petting her, and then he put a bullet in her head. Hmm. A four-year-old. I have a four-year-old. That's pathology. That's sickness. And how can they? Uh, how can they do things? Afterwards, once you kill a four-year-old, you have no problem with burning alive a Christian family that was uh, shielding a, a, a six-year-old Jewish girl. Mm-hmm. No problem, because, you know, humans turn into beasts. If it walks on two feet, it's capable of any atrocity. Mm-hmm. You know, also, it's capable of, of really uh, any uh, act of charity and any act of mm-hmm. self-sacrifice and heroism. So it's, it's just the time of extremes can release the best and the worst us. And sometimes, as my case studies show, it could release the best and worst, at the same time, in the same person. I'll give you a shocking example. Uh, The Germans recruited Polish police. They they restored in central Poland the Polish police. Uh, They issued orders. If a policeman doesn't turn himself in to report for service, he will be shot and his family repressed and they weren't joking so most policemen turned themselves in they didn't go underground the policemen who found themselves in the soviet zone were simply murdered they were shot in central poland not in western poland in western poland they were either shot or sent to concentration camps but in central poland the germans reassembled the polish police force as collaborators So imagine a situation where a village, an entire village, hid a Jewish tailor. He rotated in that village from household to household, and he would saw for the peasants. And he lived there for, I don't know, a year or so. A posse of Polish Christians, peasants from another village heard about him, and because they hated the villagers from the villager was shielding him, went looking for the guy. The guy got spooked. Instead of staying put and hidden, he ran away from his hiding place. So the posse, the thugs, intercepted him. And they turned him in to the Polish police sergeant, who was the head of the post in the nearby little town called Bodni so by law, the officer had to um, pay the posse, the thugs. Um, I think two kilograms or four pounds of sugar as bounty. By law, he was supposed to have interrogated a uh, the uh, Jewish man to find out who was hiding him, and the Jewish man was a. Uh, and the Jewish man was scared, and he thought if he, release, he, if he um, released the names, if he confessed the names of people who had helped him, he would be spared. Now, there were no Germans, and the Germans uh, around, and the Germans told the, uh, the sergeant to bring over the phone, to bring uh, the Jewish man to uh, the main town, Kraschnitz, which was several miles away. So the policeman shot the Jewish man on the way, so he would not, the fugitives would not snitch on those who had helped him because there was a mandatory death sentence in my county. I have orders, German orders printed, a mandatory death sentence to anybody who helped the Jew in any way and his neighbors. That means the entire village would have been slaughtered. And to boot, the policeman was also a member of the Polish underground. Had he not been uh, in the underground, he would have just taken the Jewish man to Krashnik, The Germans would have interrogated him, and they would have arrived to punish the village. Those were the choices, unbelievable choices, that one faced. And everybody who talks big about saving Jews, well, I, I really wouldn't like to have to wait for a situation like this. When um, human life was so cheap and penalties were so draconian to see who would stand the test of life Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in my family we have no problems with it but normal human beings yes, I'm an elitist, blah 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 normal human beings have no idea what it means especially from the safety of ivory tower how many of us have Uh, taken a homeless in or even have worked in a soup kitchen you know fugitives stink, they're also paranoid whether they're Christian, Jewish or anything else and then if you're punished with death do you have children? You do can you look me in the eye and say you would risk your children's life for strangers? Anyway, that's what I was discovering. I mean, I had heard various stories when I was a child, but a child doesn't understand. The child is simply taught what is right and what is wrong, and it's right to help others. At the same time, it's wrong to kill, but is it uh, it a crime to be scared for your family? Those are incredible dilemmas. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway...
0: uh, So could you tell us, I guess, two things? One is, uh, what does uh, Jan Gross say happened in brief in Yedwabni on July 10th, 1941? And what do you say happened?
1: Well, Jan Thomas Gross says that the Christian half of the town, jumped the Jewish to- uh, half of the town, despoiled to them, beat them, abused them, and then burned them alive in a, in a barn. He also said, I think, 1,200 people. And, uh, well, there was first that giveaway. Uh, the barn was supposed to have belonged to a, a, a small holder. Unless this was a barn of the Count Zamoyski who had 200,000 acres, it wouldn't have fit more than, I don't know, 150 people. 1200 is, you know, a small size stadium audience. Uh, so, I say that a uh, There was a hiatus of violence. There was some violence, including anti-Jewish violence, but also anti-Christian violence. Those who were considered Soviet collaborators or suspected of Soviet collaboration were targeted initially after the Germans moved east. But then there was silence and quiet, and suddenly Yedvabne blew up on July 10th, almost two weeks after the German arrival. More than two weeks. What am I saying? More, more than two weeks. Why wait so long? When the passion is hot and burning, I could understand uh, uh, the local population committing atrocity, even to the extent that was described by Jan Thomas Gross. But no, they all waited till July 10th to do it in a very orderly and organized fashion. This was orchestrated and engineered by an, a small German commando which went from town to town organizing, supervising, cajoling and uh, rounding up people to participate. Remember that every criminal enterprise loves to have a, a co-conspirators, even those who are unwilling. It's like that kid who didn't tell who broke the window while playing baseball and it was really one a, a rotten kid on the block but if nobody talks everyone's involved if you played baseball you were involved in some way you see so I divide I, I try to look and research the dynamics of the crime it was it was nearly impossible to discern certain things because people were so tainted by the media and by partisanship and bitterness and uh, I try to recreate the dynamics of the crime. For instance, one of the people who helped me was uh, Professor Jan Moriankowski. Jan Moriankowski was a, a medical scientific advisor to the Prime Minister of Israel, Golda Meir. When he read Gross's book and he had survived the war in Poland, he was so mad that he found me and instructed me on forensic science. So I had to go to Yekvabdin with a stopwatch. And he said, don't talk to anybody. They're all stupid now. They will only tell you that they either love growth or hate growth. And this is not about growth. It's about commemorating the victims. So I have, I had have to measure all the distances. I had to restore topography in order to consider all the witnesses and whether they were telling the truth. None of it had been done either by the public prosecutor's office, nor, of course, by Professor Gross. So I just I just did the grants work. I, I uh, uh, part of my investigation was really uh, police work. The crime scene was completely tainted. There was no um, excavation. I remember Professor Jan Muriankowski telling me. What's this, uh, what's this uh, 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 Ministry of Justice doing, Stop stopping um, the archaeological work? I said, well, because the Orthodox Jewish community uh, has a problem with anybody touching bodies. This is against their religion, even the remnants, ashen re- remnants and bones. And Professor Muriankowski responded, in Israel... The Orthodox Jews oftentimes, uh, uh, oftentimes interfered with our work, so we would send riot police on them. And I said, "Well, Professor Moriankowski, <laughs> imagine CNN and the Polish riot police unleashing itself on the Hasidim. <laughs> hmm. That's just not done." And Professor Moriankowski said, "Is Poland a country of law, or is Poland a theocracy?" And I said, well, Poland is newly democratic and it is trying to come to grips with its past, including ugly past, including massacres of the Jews perpetrated on, uh, on German orders by the Germans with some local participation. Nobody wants to believe that because the truth had been frozen by the communists for 50 years, so nobody wanted to research anything, really. Everything was thought to have been settled. And Gross' um, greatest contribution was that he introduced shock therapy into pop culture. But it was not helpful at all to scholarship because when things started coming out which <coughs> which um, contradicted the narrative introduced by J.T. Gross, the whole scheme came unraveling, and serious people became embarrassed to have defended him or even given him any credit credence. And that said. Jewish-Christian relations in Poland by by, back 50 years. Anything must be based on the truth, especially commemorating the victim. And we owe it to the victims of the Holocaust who knew how they perished. We have to know all that stuff, no matter how ugly it is. But postmodernism denies the existence or even achievability of truth. And Professor Gross is on the record as admitting that he loves postmodernism and deconstruction. What does it have to do with the Advantna? What does it have to do with the Holocaust? I wrote an essay once comparing the endeavors of J.T. Gross and contrasting him with George Weigel and his Cuban, the cathedral. And I compared J.T. Gross to Margaret Mead in Samoa. No American or hardly ever, hardly any American had ever been to Samoa. And Margaret Mead, who didn't know the language, hated to live with the natives because they dwelt with pigs and she stayed on an, uh, on the naval base, U.S. naval base instead. She had a scholarship from the Bishop's Museum to do another work. And by the way, she decided, oh, maybe I'll write my dissertation. Wrote the story of Samoa as Eden lost because of Christian missionaries who introduced repression, sexual repression. And in Samoa, everybody used to have sex, especially fathers and daughters, and they were all happy. Then 50 years later, somebody wrote, I think, Derek Freeman, a dissertation on uh, uh, Margaret Mead writing, um, writing uh, a, dissert- a dissertation on Samoa, and it turns out that this was all BS. So J.T. Gross took Poland, and, and he uses the vernacular that's easily recognizable on the left in, in America, as uh, as uh, castigating the United States for being patriotic and religious and he applied it to Poland so J.T. Gross's books in English are really not about Poland they are about the United States but they are punditry, they are pop culture, they are not scholarship. And in Poland, you know, he introduces the discourse that has been sexy in the United States since the 1960s, since the Countercultural Revolution. You can't blame him, that's his preference, but it has nothing to do with scholarship. It has to do with Foucault and Derrida and all the other sexy guys. hmm. Mm hmm. And that's how it is. Mm-hmm. We live in in we live in an era where the, mm-hmm. the and essentially medieval heresy has triumphed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let and me... There ha- is no inquisition to help us.
0: <laughs> yeah. Let, let me ask you a, a difficult question, and, and it is this. Uh, you say, and Gross says, and most people who have looked at the records say that there was some Polish participation in the Jedwabne massacre, and... Uh, other massacres that, as you point out in your book, are, are similar. Um, yes. H- how do we explain that participation? What What did the poles who participated in those massacres understand that they were doing? Why did they do what they did?
1: Well, uh, there are several. Um, uh, there are several um, uh, uh, groups. There were several groups involved. Uh, maybe I'll take. I'll give you a generic example. When the Nazis were rounding up Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, they had the following forces at their disposal. The gendarmerie, German police, the SS auxiliaries, who were Ukrainians and Latvians, a few Polish police whom they put outside of the ghetto walls and gates so nobody would escape and the Jewish ghetto police and they told Jewish policemen who were the majority of the force in the ghetto you don't bring say a dozen Jews a day you go to the gas yourself this is compelling I'm not excusing those Jewish policemen who caught other Jews and you can see a skewed vision of it in The Pianist. Of course, the movie is mendacious because the Germans are shown and their ethnic Latvian and Ukrainian auxiliaries as doing all the work. The Germans were too lazy. They made the Jews do it. So Jewish policemen who are depicted in the movie as being a part of the Cordon were really involved in rounding up other Jews. So here's one category, those who are compelled those who are compelled and those who don't who don't flee because they are scared. And among those who are compelled, some at least liked to have power. It's perverse, but it's inexplicably human. <coughs> they love to have power. So in Yodvabna you had those categories. Everybody was ordered to show up, ordered to show up at the marketplace. And all the Christians. Well, those who were smart went into hiding. The rest came, whether out of curiosity or fear, mostly fear. And then they were told to um, round up all the Jews, and probably single a single or uh, maybe two gendarmes, two assessment would accompany them on those forays, and uh, nothing was obvious at that time, so most of those compelled to obey simply obeyed. Remember the Tutsi and Hutu massacres? Some of the moderate Hutus uh, took, play, took part in um, rounding people up. And only then a few would be compelled by the genocidaires to murder the Tutsis you see some of them balked and were murdered themselves this was not the case here here some escaped others did so half-heartedly a few began to like it especially those who had shown themselves earlier to have been uh, involved in various criminal and violent activities It gives you power. You're invincible. And there were those who were simply swept by uh, uh, the events. People do things unquestioningly. One time I was at Princeton and I was walking with some friends and I saw some kids shaking a a street lamp to extinguish it. Mm And, you know, it took me about a minute to react because it, my brain was... Probably, I said, what the hell are they doing? A minute. In a minute, I could have been dead, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Or I could have witnessed someone being killed. And this was just a couple of... Uh, three frat boys shaking a street lamp. It took me a minute before I yelled, human beings don't have usually a fast reflex, unless they're on the prowl and unless they're so alert as to be able to lead. And the trick under the Nazi occupation was to blend in. If I am compelled to be a part of the crowd with sticks guarding Jews on routing them up, I must neither be too fast nor too slow. I must not be noticed. So I'm trying to blend in and be not only neutral, but more than passive. Much of it, I mean, much of it, like the murder of the little girl that the gendarme petted on the head, little Jewish girl I told you about, is 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 human psychology under uh, extreme circumstances. So I answer, and I answered in my book, yes, you bet, there were Polish Christians participating in this. And a few of them probably had fun. I'm sorry to say, just like the SS, but the SS loved it, of course. Uh, but we won't know the casualties and we won't know the exact, uh, the exact causes of death until there is a full uh, investigation and exclamation. And it's not in the cards, mm-hmm. by the way, the, the, uh, uh, the Minister of Justice, who disallowed it, uh, became Poland's president who died in a plane crash in Smolensk mm-hmm. in 2010. So, we're talking here about right wingers not wanting to offend the Jewish community and its religious sensitivities.
0: Mm-hmm. So if we it's could...
1: really gory. Everything we're talking mm-hmm. about is gory and is disgusting. And my family sometimes and my friends would say, why do you even bother? You know, this is America's popular culture. Everybody knows. Uh, at least since that show, Shaw in the 1970s, and the Poles helped the Germans, and the Germans don't exist anymore. It's the Nazis. So why do you always insist on digging in this? This only antagonizes people. You won't get a job, blah, blah, blah. But I don't care. I'm curious. I would like to know what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm very sorry uh, um, about any of this. I'm very sorry nobody took care of Lenin, and nobody took care of Hitler.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm very sorry Bolsheviks happened, and I'm very sorry that the the Nazis happened. Mm
0: -hmm. So if we could jump forward just a little bit to what I understand is Gross's next installment, and that is Golden Harvest.
1: well, the next installment was my book called After the Holocaust, mm. Jew, uh, Polish-Jewish Conflict in the Wake of World War II. And Gross responded with fear, which was about the same period. Mm-hmm. And she, well, again, we got more deconstruction and psychobabble And then the third installment was The Golden Harvest.
2: Mm-hmm. And, so,
1: and uh, we responded with uh, uh, "Golden Harvest" or "Hearts of Gold."
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let me just say a few words about "Golden Harvest." The, the book is um, apparently he was invited to write it. Uh, if if we he says in the introduction, and and it was in a series of books that was uh, designed to use a single historical artifact, in this case a f- photograph, to epitomize an era or an event. And the photo that he picks uh, in his description is a photo taken by he doesn't know whom uh, of uh, poles in the countryside who have been digging uh, in the remnants of a mass murder site for presumably something of value. And they have been picked up apparently, again I keep saying apparently because there's some dispute about this, by the local police.
1: Well, uh Even Gross' friends in uh, Poland's main leftist newspaper, the Electoral Gazette, Gazeta Wyborcza, have now agreed that this is not a picture that Gross thought it was. So it's not even from Treblinka. Poland was a battlefield, and for a few years after World War II, the authorities went around eh, enlisting people to exhume mass graves, and moving the, moving the bodies into proper burial sites. It went on all over Poland. We don't know uh, whether this picture was taken at a concentration camp or some mass execution site. We don't know it. We simply don't know. It's, it's been established that no topographical feature matches anything around Treblinka. That much we know. And uh, further, that picture was shown all over the neighborhood of where the camp was. And nobody recognizes his his relatives. Nobody recognizes anybody on that picture. That means it was not from that locality. Because people can recognize their relatives normally. And Mm -hmm. they are eager to be in the press. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the picture is... Inadequate. However, there was, and there is, uh, always a human quest for treasure, and indeed during and after the war in Poland, uh, hey, right now if you go to the site of the former Battle of Stalingrad, two groups clash. One group which digs out dead uh, soldiers and tries to bury them with honor, including Germans, collecting the dog tags. And another group, that say the so-called grave robbers, they're just looking for money or gold or something. So it is a common occurrence. Um, uh, and this, this obviously does not uh, excuse any grave robbers, but it puts everything in, in, the, in the proper context. So in Poland, you had people who uh, robbed graves, including looking... They they looked for uh, Jewish gold, so to speak. Around Treblinka, so it happened that the great perpetrators were Red Army soldiers who used dynamite to blow up Jewish graves and look for gold. Incidentally, the Polish anti-communist underground that used to be anti-Nazi and then switched to fighting the communists punished uh, civilian grave robbers because they thought it was unchristian and demoralizing and bestial. So the underground would go after grave robbers and beat them, beat the Jesus out of them publicly because the underground thought that only Nazis and communists were beasts. And the population should observe Catholic ways. So much for golden harvest.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so you respond with a a book of, of studies, studies on the fate of wartime Poles and Jews. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how you put that together and what its main findings were.
1: Well, uh, all all the the, the participants or all the contributors to the volumes work on certain topics uh, regarding World War II and its aftermath. So they have documents handy always regarding regarding, uh, sometimes obscure localities or obscure events. And I said, well, you know, why don't we put a sample together? because J.T. Gross mentions off-the-cuff against, another, again, another Samoa in Poland, Grzywczyna Wielka, some obscure village that nobody knows anything about. And lo and behold, there is a fellow who knows about it, who really has, has done a case study of the village. And there is another fellow who uh, tracks the extreme, under, uh, the extreme right-wing underground, which was anti-Semitic no doubt about it, but they were not uh, they were culturally (laughs) how to explain it they were culturally anti-Semitic and economically anti-Semitic which didn't preclude saving Jews who were considered human beings in distress which is a paradox but not if you're not a racist so so I asked all those people, do you have stuff? And one person even had a lot of uh, documents and evidence from Jewish sources mostly about saving um, uh, Jews outside of Treblinka by the peasants who were supposed to uh, have been bestial to the Jews and murdered them only. I'll tell you an anecdote. J.T. Gross has admitted now a few times At public meetings, but never in print and never in the media, that he was really writing about pathologies. And he was writing about pathologies as in lower depth, a pathological fringe of the Polish society, then he's right on the bottom. But he tries to... Project his pathological fantasies onto the society at at large, and there is no society like this. This is precisely what the Jews ascri- what the Nazis ascribe to the Jews, that all Jews were evil and pathological. That's what J. J. T. Gross reverses anti-Semitic propaganda, and makes it anti-Polish Christian, and that's uh, well. And as as. Uh, Bill Buckley said anti-Catholicism is the anti-Semitism of American liberal intellectuals. That's the last prejudice that can fly in academia. So J.T. Gross has no detractors. He only has the Amen Corner. Mm -hmm. So let let me ask you this. Uh, We're about out of
0: time. This this is fascinating, and I could ask many more questions, but... um, and I will admit before I ask the question that it really has nothing to do with the case at hand. But um, do you know Gross?
1: Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. He was even going to sit on my uh, dissertation, but I think he got mad and uh, didn't sit on my dissertation. He didn't read it. I even talked to him about it. But he used to come to our um, to our bank in San Francisco, Polish American Federal Credit Union, Red City, when he was researching. That's that's my family. My family started it in California. Uh, When he was researching at the Hoover, he would come and talk about you know what Emmy Grace talked about, and he was quite normal. But he was an obscure, unsexy academic. Now he's cutting-edge, sexy, Mm -hmm. whatever that means in Mm -hmm. Mm postmodernism.
0: Have you looked at the reviews of Golden Harvest? I haven't. Was it well received?
1: No. It died. There was one uh, rather pedestrian review in uh, uh, Great Britain, and there was uh, a a blurb or a shill in The New Yorker. Just very brief. It died. I think the novelty has worn off, uh, and uh, people who uh, embrace J.T. Gross, whether Christians or Jews, in Poland and here... Uh, are becoming a bit embarrassed. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. His star has waned. Well, I can tell you an anecdote about it. Uh, Some um, Jewish leaders came to the leadership of my graduate school and expressed their concerns about me. And then they were told, well, have you read his book? And because the person who was talking to them is very trustworthy and admired by those leaders, they said no. And a couple of them read the books, and they said, my books, and they said, well, oh, okay, now we see it. It's a misunderstanding.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> except nobody reads my books. Now you've read it, I'm very shocked. I read your Actually. books. I read them, and I enjoyed them <laughs> I very
0: much, and I hope other people read them. I t- I'll, yeah. tell this, I'll tell this anecdote, and it's true that uh, you know I happened on your work just by accident, thank God for libraries and browsing, because I was looking for neighbors, and I found <laughs> neighbors, and your book was right next to it. And I said, uh, well, I'll just pick up that one, too. Well, and,
1: that's amazing and unusual.
0: Well, you know, it's I, I don't think it's that terribly unusual, people who browse through libraries. But let me ask one more question. I, I promised I wouldn't ask another one. But it seems to me that a lot of the work that local uh, historians such as yourself, especially local historians in wartime Poland, um, that their work would be of, of great interest to Yad Vashem. Um, are you asked to consult with them or, because you must uncover people who are among the righteous and are not no. recognized.
1: No, so, I mean, I was um, a presidential nominee uh, on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial uh, uh, Museum's Council, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, And uh, for five years, but I just attended the meetings basically and nobody was interested in the museum either, or in Yad Vashem. Hmm. But take heart, Yad Vashem has belatedly recognized the Jewish military union as a serious player during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Mm -hmm. Do you know why it's taken them 70 years almost? Because those were right-wing Jews. They were the Beit the Jewish military organization so Mm -hmm. nobody knows anything about them and the stereotype has it that the Jews all have to be left-wingers and that's just insane Mm -hmm. the Jewish community uh, enjoys pluralism as any other community in the world Mm -hmm. but yet the discourse is that everybody had to be a socialist or a a leftist Zionist. No, these guys were, you know, the Beitarim. They were, in fact, their direct line successor is the Likud. Mm -hmm. Do they strike you as very warm, fuzzy? No. No, they were... They were the fiercest fighters, but they were also anti-communist. Not only anti-Nazi; they hated the Nazis, of course, but they hated the communists too. And before World War II, they used to beat communists up mm-hmm. who penetrated the Jewish community. So they are not exactly kosher <laughs> with, with the mainstream. With the mainstream Yad Vashem and uh, and U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, uh, liberal crowd. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
0: I should say, because
1: but d- once once uh, they come to grips with the Jewish military uh, union, uh, maybe maybe somewhere along the way they'll pick me up.
0: Yeah, I should I-, I should say we have ventured off a little bit into the realm of politics, and I can see how we did that, and it's appropriate. But the thing I want to say to the readers of these books, or the potential readers of studies on the fate of wartime Poles and Jews, and then the massacre at Yed Vabne, and then the third book, I don't recall the name of it. What was it, Mark?
1: After, after the Holocaust.
0: After the Holocaust. Is that All these is books... Jewish
1: conflict in the wake of World War II.
0: Yes, it's th- these books are incredibly meticulously researched, and they are... Thank you. They are as... Um, they are as objective as I think one can be in a, in, a, in a situation such as this. They really try to tell you what happened. And, you know, I have read a lot about um, Central Europe, let's say that, in the mid-20th century and the things that went on there. And I've read especially a lot about uh, the Holocaust. And I was beginning to think that it was hard to say anything new. And I have, have and, and Marek's work has completely disabused me of this. It's that there, there, there are, there are uh, oceans of things to be found out about how it transpired, and who was involved, and why it happened, and oh. and all of these things. I mean, the lack of local studies, for example, I had never read a local study. You know, because I was introduced into Holocaust literature by, you know. Uh, Lucy Davidovitz and and uh, and and Raoul Hilberg.
1: Raoul Hilberg, the great Raul yeah. Hilberg, supported my work on Ylva, yeah. I forgot the So, so
0: these were, you know, these were the books that I read, and they are overviews. They are big overviews. And in the case of Hilberg, yeah. you know, he relies on captured German documents, documents that were brought to the United States, and that's and a fine he, thing. He, he you know, he
1: said he's re- he's on the record as saying that he 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 said. I've read millions of pages of German documents. There is nothing about the Polish participation in the Holocaust. He said, the French, the Belgians, the Dutch, uh, the Danish, the Norwegians, uh, the Estonians, the Latvians, the Lithuanians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, the Croatians, Romanians, Hungarians, Bulgarians, everybody he says, but not the Poles. That's Raoul Hilberg. He was the ultimate empiricist, uh, and I respected him. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, when you look at J.T. Gross, think about Goldhagen Jr. Yeah. Because that's what J.T. J. Gross did in Poland and here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Very Goldhagenian. Mm-hmm. So it was not even innovative within the American context.
2: hmm
0: Yes. yes, well, anyway, we've taken up a huge amount of your time. As I say, I so much admire this work, well, and so I much. really hope that people take the time to read it and judge for themselves uh, about this really important, and I think from a historical point of view, a kind of um, a new issue. I mean, I should say I, I happened upon it again. I'm sorry to go on, but I remember reading in just a couple of pages, and it really must not have been more than a, a I don't know, it might even have been just a paragraph or something in a work by um, Christopher Browning on the origin of the Holocaust, where he says that when the Nazis invaded eastern Poland, there were spontaneous pogroms. And that's all he says. But I remember it caught my eye. And I thought, hmm, that's really strange. I wonder what was actually happening there. <laughs> I mean, the book is about Some many of other them things. Were, because yeah. there was
1: an anti communist <laughs> yeah. rising, right. which was unconnected to anything uh, Nazi, yeah. but then the communists ran away. Yeah. All the connected collaborators split, and the helpless and defenseless state. So the frenzy and ferocity turned, especially in the further east you went, that turned on defenseless women and children and elderly of the Jewish mm-hmm. community. Those people were completely innocent.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's this kind of thing. You know, again, just a, a couple of lines in Browning, who, who I admire in many ways. I, you know, I, I, I just... It just caught my eye, and then to find these books that explain exactly what was going on is a. It was very, um, it was very eye-opening to me. Anyway, I, I've, I've gone on enough about you. You're you're invited to Thanksgiving at my house.
1: Well, oh, <laughs> thank you very much. So, I'll take you up on if you can put up with my four-year-old. Yeah, well, I
0: have two young ones of my own, so they can fight it out. So anyway, uh, Mark. Um, I want to thank you uh, very much for being on the show. We have a traditional final question on New Books in History, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your current project?
1: Uh, I I am working on, of course, a couple of things that were more than a couple of things at once I'm, I'm doing uh, Stalin's Underground in Poland which is uh, Polish Workers Party Polish Communist Party a, I'm, I'm beginning to uh, put together a new book on it, however my newest book will be out should have been out on the 30th of, of September, but it will be out within two weeks, it's called Intermarium, the lands between the Black and Baltic seas the publisher is Transactions the uh, late Irving Horowitz was, as very many uh, ancient ones, was a, a great supporter of my work. So he even gave me a blurb, which mm. I uh, now understand is a great distinction because he. Refused, as a custom, to blurb anyone, for he said that uh, then everybody would uh, would ask him for a blurb. And now he's dead, and I think he, I'm the only one. He he blurb,ed and I was the last one blurb. So anyway, but his wife preserved it, Mary Curtis, and uh, he, he, the publisher even wrote me a le- a, a letter. A, are we sure we have a blurb from Dr. Horowitz? Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: and his wife responded, Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, congratulations on but that.
1: Better. Thank you very much. Yeah. Intermarium. Intermarium. Okay.
0: Well, we'll look for that. Uh, today, but, we've been talking with uh, Mark Hadakievich about uh, several of his books. Um, uh, one was The Massacre in Yedvabne, July 10th, 1941, before, during, and after, and then studies on the fate of wartime Poles and Jews. Mark, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening, too.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Mara Khodekiewicz about his book The Massacre in Jedwabne, July 10th, 1941, before, during, after. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.